Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and Merry Christmas to everyone listening in today. My name is Ryan Miner. You are listening to A Minor Detail. Today I have the pleasure and the privilege to have congressional candidate Harold Painter Jr., who is a Republican candidate for Congress in Maryland's 6th Congressional District. And this is Mr. Painter's second time running for the district, and I want to welcome you to the show. Harold, welcome. Thank you very much, Ryan, for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. So you are you are running for Congress, and some people may think, oh my goodness, what does that mean? Running for Congress, that's a big endeavor. But you did this last uh, election cycle. And so let's start out. Um, I want to learn a little bit about you, uh, who you are, uh, what you um, what you hope to accomplish in office, and I'd like for people to, uh, since you haven't um, you haven't had a whole lot of media exposure since you you launched your second bid, but um, let's let's talk about who you are and why you jumped into this race. So I you can take it away. All right, I'll give you the five minute thumbnail sketch on me and who I am. Uh, right. I'm from. Uh, I'm from uh, just outside of Cumberland in western Maryland originally. Uh, I was born up there in 1961, so, you know, I'm in my mid-50s now. I uh, born and raised up there, um, went to college at WVU, you know, West Virginia University for my undergrad in accounting, and I got my master's at Virginia Tech in accounting. Uh, came to the D.C. area, uh, worked for eight years at one of the large international accounting firms, and uh, then I went out on my own, and um, I've been on my own ever since. Uh, that's the the quick and dirty on the history on Harold Painter. So you know, basically, I'm a CPA practicing uh, now in Montgomery County, and, and have been for quite some time. Um, reason why I got in the race last time. Uh, I really wasn't following politics all that much, and a, a client of mine who's actually fairly involved in politics, that's kind of what he does, had mentioned to me about the gerrymandering that was uh, going on um, to try to get um, J- Roscoe Bartlett gerrymandered out. Um, that was the first I had really been cognizant of, a, of it all. So... Uh, I kind of followed that, voted in uh, that that election, you know, for Roscoe, trying to keep him in office, and uh, unfortunately he lost. And I said then, I said, uh, if, uh, you know, somebody from back home doesn't run next time, that, hell, if nobody else did, I would. And <laughs> two years go by, uh, nobody who even lived in the 6th Congressional District from either party was running. Um, so I'm like, well, I'll run. So I went over to Annapolis. It was a hundred bucks, and you fill out a few forms. That's all you have to do to run for Congress. Um, you know, I then ran, you know, some ads in every different county um, in the newspapers and things that, and did some flyers uh, that were within the district. But I'm not going to lie; I knew based on that small budget. I wasn't going to win, but at least I would kind of thumb my nose at the gerrymandering and uh, try to make the um, the case that, you know, hey, this shouldn't have gone on, and uh, it's really just not right. And to be honest, I was very happy with the response I got out of that. Uh, there were between 27 and 28,000 votes cast in the primary last time, and I got just shy of 5,000 of them yeah. for, you know, virtually no effort. So... Uh, I thought that was a very good return on my well, money. You ran last uh, time in, in 2014, and you uh, your total voter percentage was 4,718 to Dan Bongino's 23,933. And, Harold, when you jumped into the race, knowing that Dan Bongino had just come down from running for the United States Senate in 2012, and then uh, he lived... Uh, Roughly about 50 miles outside of the district um, in Anne Arundel County, and he was running from Severna Park. And you knew running for running against Dan Bongino was going to be an uphill endeavor. So, were you ever discouraged when you were running for Congress uh, two years ago? I would be honest. I had never heard of Dan Bongino when I signed up to run for Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, My client told me when he told me what was going on. He described well. 
Maryland's got a guy that they're going to run that ran for Senate last time, didn't do all that good, and um, lives out, in, like you're saying, in the Annapolis area. I didn't know if his name was Dan Bongino, Fred Smith, Ryan Miner. I had no clue who I was running against. I just knew I was running against somebody that didn't live in the district yeah. and um, didn't come from the area. That's all I knew when I signed up. Wow, yeah. So yeah, I didn't you, know who he was. During, now, during your last election, um, when you registered to vote, did you do any of the candidate forms? I mean, look, you got endorsed by the Montgomery County Gazette newspaper, which is no longer in circulation because they went out of business. But nonetheless, you were endorsed by a newspaper last time. And talk about that. How did that go down? All right. Well, um, to be honest, it was fairly straightforward. Um, I forget if they called or emailed my website. It was one or the other. They contacted me and asked, hey, um, could we interview you? And yeah, I said, sure, you know, I'm running. I'd love to be interviewed. Um, they asked, it was still in, because I, I mainly do taxes for a living. It was in tax season. So I asked the guy, I said, can we do this after April 15th? I was afraid that might have been a little too late. Uh, but he says, now we can come up. So a few days after April 15th, um, put on my suit and tie, went up. Um, it wasn't too long, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. We sat and just talked in a room, me and two gentlemen from the uh, Gazette, like you're talking about. Uh, they asked me what I thought about this, what I thought about that, why I was running, what my ideas were. Um, and then I got lucky, and uh, I guess they gave me their nod. So um, I was pretty happy with that. Um, well, you're certainly not lacking policy chops because I had watched a video of you. Uh, you were you were sitting on, I, I assume it was your brother's porch, front porch? Yeah, my brother Jimmy. I got two brothers, and uh, it was on Jimmy's back porch, correct. Right, and that was up in that was the video was captured up in Cumberland. Is that correct? Right, absolutely right. Yes, yeah, right, right in the area where we grew up. Right. Okay, so we'll get to that. But anyway, back to 2012, or I'm sorry, 2014. So um, now, did you did you participate in any candidate forums where you come out and you know you and Dan Bongino sit on the same stage and then they asked you a series of questions about where you stand on the issues? No, the only time I left my desk was to go to the interview with the Gazette. That was okay. it. So, and and look, you you pulled out almost five thousand votes, sixteen percent of the vote against a guy that is pretty popular, and he's been on the radio. He uh, he campaigned all over the district, and uh, you still pulled out sixteen point five percent of the vote, and. Do you think that the people who voted for you in the 2014 primary, do you think that that was a protest vote against Mr. Bongino, or do you think it is because of the policies that you had discussed and the, the information that you released um, throughout your own campaign? Well, I'm hoping it was a combination of the two. Um, you know, I'm just going off a of gut and from a few people I've talked to. Um, you know, for, for instance, the one thing that on the numbers. You know, I did about the same across each county with the exception of Garrett County, uh, which is the one place I did better, not a lot better, but I did, you know, it was noticeable. Um, and uh, I think that may have been in re reaction to, you know, I've got um, some ideas on my website then and they're on there now. Um, and, and in a letter that I had sent out to people, mainly in Allegheny County, but up in that neck of the woods, um, about trying to fight the war on coal. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Garrett County, that is still a significant part of the economy up there. So I like to think that the reason I did better in Garrett County was some people were, at least some people, were kind of responding to me trying to fight the war on coal a little bit. So I think that at least some of it was not the Dan Bongino, anybody but Dan Bongino vote, but some of it was responding positively to some of the things I said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well... So you, you know, after after you were defeated in the primary, was it a set? How did you feel? Was it a setback? I or was did pretty you... happy. Uh, I'll be honest. I, I didn't know if I was going to get any more votes than me and my own brothers. <laughs> um, so the fact that I didn't get four votes, uh, I was, I'm be honest, I was very happy. 
Um, so that's why I left my website up. I would have taken mm-hmm. it down right after the election if I got six votes, you know. Um, because honestly, I think I've got a pretty decent message that really needs to, to get out. And that's why I left my website up, um, figuring I'd probably take it down before this election. Um, so, yeah, I, I think at least some of that vote was the, hey, I like what this guy has to say, not just the, I'd vote for anybody other than Dan. I'm sure I got the, I'll vote for anybody other than Dan vote, but uh, uh, I like to think uh, some of it was, hey, this guy Painter's saying some things I like to hear. Well, now um, Mr. Bongino has left the state of Maryland, and he had formed a political action committee uh, in the uh, in Maryland that was called Seed No Ground, and... Uh, Mr. Bongino left and moved to Florida for personal reasons. Uh, he is he and his wife and uh, and and two two daughters, uh, wonderful family. They 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 moved and now Mr. Bongino, from what I'm reading, that he's considering running for the United States Senate uh, for Marco Rubio's seat. That is um, currently um, that Marco's not running for because he's running for president. So um, now that you you are jumping into this race again and putting your name out there. And, Harold, go ahead and, for the record, the name of your website is what? What is the URL address? Uh, www.painterforcongress.com. Painterforcongress.com, okay. Yeah, should be pretty easy. Anybody wants to check out my uh, website on um, the Internet, www.painterforcongress.com. If you just Google Harold Painter, Maryland Congress should come right up. And then you had mentioned I've got a couple of videos on YouTube. I've got links right there on my welcome page on my website, links right there over to my YouTube account where I've got my videos where you know I kind of go into detail on um, why I'm running and what I'm running on, you know, the platform I stand for and how I plan to pay for things. Absolutely. Uh, you registered to vote. Um, are you signed up to run in the 6th Congressional District uh, back in August, August 21st to be exact? And you have a few a few opponents in this race, and I didn't really expect the race to be uh, this crowded. But look, you're up against Washington County Commissioner Terry Baker, uh, Dr. Scott Chang, um, perennial candidate Robin Ficker, who's an attorney, um, Ami Hober, Frank Howard, Christopher James Mason, uh, and Delegate David Vote from Frederick County. So you have you have a few opponents in this race, and as it stands, um, you have um, you have been using your website and social media like YouTube to get out your message. And um, you know, you, if you drive around the district, you're going to see signs uh, for Robin Ficker, who uh, Mr. Ficker runs every election and so far this race has been um pretty pretty low key i would say um uh from my perspective um you know you have robin ficker who is attacking people uh left and right uh, who hasn't put out any substantive policy whatsoever and now let me ask you a question you're going to be attending the debate coming up in january is that correct that's right yes oh that's great so okay um, so you're going to have a chance to stand on the same stage as your opponents and talk about where you stand on these issues and why you're the best representative running in Maryland's 6th Congressional District. So, Harold, why are you the best person to be the next Republican elected official that serves the 6th Congressional District? Uh, honestly, I think that you know, I've got the right background, um, you know, Born and raised, lived here my whole life. I'm born in a blue-collar family. You know, my dad was a steam fitter. That's, you know, member of Local 49, back home plumbers and steam fitters. People don't know what steam fitters are. They're like um, glorified or the big-time plumbers. They put the uh, the big pipelines in, things like that. Um, he did a term and a half, actually, as the business agent for the local union back home as well. You know, you get elected by the men. Right. Uh, so while he was in there, I kind of learned a little bit about um, the business side of how they run the unions, too. Uh, you know, both my grandparents uh, were blue-collar working guys, too, back home. And that was when Cumberland, the area that I'm from, uh, offered working people 
plenty of opportunities at that time, be it the Selenies, the Kelly, the PPG, you can go on and on. Um, so I come from a background, I, I know exactly how the working man in this state, in this area of the state, uh, used to have it, how it has declined for him terribly over a generation or two. Um, I've worked down here in the D.C. area now for a long time, um, worked with people from the other spectrum every day, you know, work with multimillionaires every day, small businessmen every day. Um, so I kind of have seen it all from the outhouse to the Taj Mahal, which that comes out of a song somewhere, a country song. Um, honestly, I don't think a lot of the other candidates really have the broad spectrum like that I do. And uh, I think I've got a pretty decent background in economics. And honestly, I think what America really needs more than anything, I know people want to focus on the war on terror and all that right now. But long term, what America has needed for the last 20 plus years, and really I think its main problem facing it today, is economics. And Instead of sending a bunch of lawyers back down to Washington, we need to send a bunch of accountants down to Washington uh, to get our financial house in order. I think I'm the best guy. <laughs> well, I, I hear you there, and that's why I decided instead of pursuing a law degree to uh, to instead pursue a master's in business administration because I believe that economics and finance uh, and the, 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 the business perspective uh, within this country um, – could use uh, you know more younger folks to to jump in and to really find an entrepreneurial spirit and uh, change this country for the better and that's why uh, next year I'll graduate with a an MBA from uh, Mount St Mary's so I and and Harold I should have called on you to help me with my accounting class because I took an advanced accounting class and it was I have to say it was a little tough so maybe maybe next semester I'll have to call on you. Well, I don't want to lie. It's been a long time since I took advanced accounting. Uh, they might have changed the answer since I took it. But <laughs> well, <laughs> you I think give me they, a call. I'll see if I can help you on some of it. I think debits and credits stay the same, and I think the oh, yeah, that, is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that stayed the same. That's yeah. So uh, you know, I agree. I think that accountants uh, and people who work with money, who understand economics, especially free market economics, and use that experience uh, and take it to Washington and apply it. Uh, because look, Harold, you are, someone, you are someone who looks at budgets every single day, and you help families plan how to spend their money within, uh, within their, their available income. So how, are you, how will you use your experience as a CPA and bring that directly to Washington and apply it on a macro scale? Uh, honestly, the first thing I would do, I've already talked, you know, a bunch of uh, friends of mine that I all, uh, I've all i stayed in contact with over the years, and a lot of them I still do their taxes too because they weren't tax people. They were just accountants. Um, you give Harold Painter the budget of the United States government, and you give me where I don't have to do my own job now, but that is my job is to tear through that. I'll bring down there six or eight guys I know that, like me, they got 30 years plus accounting experience, all from international accounting firms. I will go through that thing, and it will go back to the president's desk balanced. Um, now, people might not like about some of the things I cut or propose, but I will spend the time, and I've got plenty of my buddies who would love to get in a smoke-filled room with me and tear through it and go through it. Uh, I tell you, that's the first thing I would do. The second thing, when they bring up, we need this, we need this, how are you going to pay for it? Right. You know, we all saw where uh, they had to cop out a few years ago where they said, well, we're going to make these draconian cuts that in order to get a budget passed, that if we can't agree on what cuts we're going to make, then these across-the-board draconian cuts are going to kick in. And that was to say that, well, no one would ever let that happen because we can't, so we'll have to grow up, we'll have to agree. And then what happened? Nobody grew up. Nobody agreed. Uh, my understanding is the clock expired on that. They were actually watching a football game. Mm -hmm. you know, we've got to say no. It's no different. I, I remember a good buddy of mine I talked to a few years ago. He's telling me how he and his wife were sitting at the table uh, one year, and he was cutting up the credit cards. He said, enough is enough, and she was crying, and he started crying because he, she was crying. 
But that's where America is. We've maxed out the credit cards. We cannot continue like we are. We've got to get our fiscal house in order. There's just no other alternative. We're at the end of the rope. We can't kick the can down the road. We can't just say we're going to keep borrowing more. We've got to stop. We've got to stop this lunacy. I agree. And our country is in a grave fiscal state. And people like yourself who understand what it means to budget, what it means to take a look and really analyze where we're spending money and, most importantly, what we're spending money on. And my concern – and, Harold, I'm a libertarian Republican, so that means that um, I believe in free market economics. And I think you and I have discussed that uh, briefly in some of our exchanges. You also agree with the free market. Can you discuss a little bit about that? and how you would take your experience in economics and work inside Congress to really fundamentally reshape how Washington does business. Well, that's a that's a big <laughs> I'll give you uh, the kind of the short version on that is that you know I really think that the less the government gets involved with regulation the last, I mean, nobody wants an unsafe working condition. Nobody right. wants raw sewage thrown in the Potomac. Um, no. You know, nobody wants that. Um, but there comes a point, and I think we passed that point about 25 years ago, where constant government interference in everything that you do it just balls everybody up. Uh, I don't care if you're a small businessman or, or a Fortune 500 company that you're so balled up in red tape that it's virtually impossible to get anything done, to do anything right, to comply with the rules and regulations that are out there. Um, So I really think we need to put a moratorium on freezing regulations, cutting regulations back that already exist, putting a freeze on new laws until we decide what laws that are out there we can get the heck off of the books, um and really allow business to operate on their own without tremendous oversight on everything they do. Well, that's the short version of it. Um, you, in your video, uh, you talked about a seven-point plan to help America and Western Maryland, and you want to help people, as you said, get a job and support their family. And so, Harold, would you walk through your seven-point plan for the audience and talk about each of the bullet points? All right. Um, The first one that I start off with is a tax cut, but now a tax cut for the working man. uh, I hear a lot about uh, tax cuts from virtually everybody who's running for um, president wants a tax cut, at least on the Republican side. Uh, But most of the tax cut proposals benefit the the wealthy guy, not the working guy. Who's struggling to put food on the table? And what's really going to stimulate the economy? You give a tax cut to the people that are working hard but struggling to get by. That's where you give the tax cut to. That money will be spent virtually immediately. That will really stimulate the economy. It will really improve most the lives of the people that need the improvement the most. Um and uh, really enable, I think, a guy that's struggling to get by to have an easier time in life and to make it easier to fix up his house, to buy a new car, send his kids to school, buy him a computer, whatever. So I, I want the tax cut at the bottom end, not at the top end, where usually uh, the Republicans seem to want to do tax cuts. Um how to pay for that, I've got a couple ideas there. I mean, it's easy to say we need to cut taxes. Very few people then come up with how you're going to pay for that. Uh, the usual answer is, oh, they'll pay for themselves, which right. is usually a crock of nonsense. Uh, do they partly pay for themselves? Sure. You stimulate more economic activity. Companies are showing more profits. They're paying more taxes. So, yeah, I'll buy that a tax cut in and of itself will partly fund itself, but it's not going to fully fund itself. Um, the next kind of couple of things I'd like to do would be to look at the capital gains rate. Now, I know that to most Republicans, this is just anathema here, what I'm going to propose, but I, I don't care. Um, you know, because I've seen a lot of people have large capital gains, and I'm talking $10 million and more, 
uh, in their careers, now, in my career. Now, the general theory behind the capital gains break is that, well, we want to encourage investment. You give people a break on the capital gains, they're more likely to invest, they're less likely to become dependent on the government, it helps stimulate the economy, um, so that's why the lower rate. I buy that, but I buy that up to an extent. Um, you know, to me, I'd like to say, look, we're going to do that for the first million dollars of gains in each person's lifetime. Right. After a million dollars of capital gains, and that's not a million invested, that's a million of gains I'm proposing. After that, you pay the same tax rate as uh, anybody else pays on their income. As a construction worker has to climb up on iron and weld, or a man goes down to mine, um, to mine coal, why are you getting a break on your capital gains uh, and they're not getting a break on uh, their taxes? So I'd like to propose limiting that benefit to the first million. Also, um, prior to the second President Bush, uh, dividends were taxed like other ordinary income, just like wages or what have you. But he then extended the capital gains rate to most dividends. You know, REITs don't get them, REMIX don't get them, things like that. But you know, most dividends uh, get the capital gains tax break, too, under the same basic theory of let's avoid double taxation, let's uh, give people an incentive to invest. And I can tell you, as a guy for 30 years who's done taxes for a living, I don't think there's been one dollar more invested or not invested because of the rate break. Yeah, people might have more money, more disposable, but has it influenced people's decision to go into or not into the market? No. I can tell you as a guy who every year does hundreds of tax returns, at least half of them for millionaires and multimillionaires, and when I was at the big firm, even a billionaire, it has absolutely no impact on people's thinking. I've had this discussion with people sitting right across my table. So I'm like, fine, you want to incentivize people to invest, you want to give them a break on their dividends, fine, give them a break on the first $10,000 of dividends a year. You know, you equate that $10,000 back, you're probably talking about a portfolio in what the yields are in today's market, you know, you're talking about you know, maybe even a million-dollar portfolio. You know, at some point, it's like, okay, fine. You've got a nice investment built up, a lot of which, from my experience, comes from people's grandfathers and fathers just dying and giving it to them. Right. Uh, not, not that they built it up from – no, I've got people that built up. i got a gentleman sold a company last year for a hundred over $100 million. He started it in his garage, you know. Wow. Um, so, so you can still build things in America. Uh, I worked with him from the day he started. I never forget. I won't go too far into because kind of giving away personal. I don't want to give away any personal information. But yeah. when I, the first time I walked into that garage, I didn't think he was going to make. It. <laughs> I'm like, hey, this guy ain't gonna make it. And then about a year ago, he sells the company for over a hundred million dollars. Uh, shows show, shows what a prognosticator I am. Um, so, but it does show it's still possible in America, okay? Yeah. Um, but he would have built that business if he got a dividend break or not, okay? So I think that another way to pay for it, besides just saying, look, we're only going to give you the capital gains break on the first million dollars of gains in your life, would be to say, look, we're going to give you the capital gains break on dividends as well, but on the first ten grand. Um, after that, you're going to pay the same rate that everybody else pays, that Ryan pays on his wages, that Harold pays on what he makes, that my brothers make when both my brothers work construction. When they go out there, if it's 3 degrees or 103 degrees and go out uh, in a risky, dangerous job, you're going to pay the same rate that they're paying. Mm -hmm. um, the third thing I want to pick at on capital gains here. Uh, America, when you talk to businessmen who, in, in this day and age and practicing around here, you deal with people for a lot more international, um, that long-term capital gains that get the break are defined as being held for one year or more. I mean, really, one year, that's long-term. Uh, America really has become centered on short-term. You know, I know a lot of it, you know, guys on Wall Street are like, hey, if I can pump up earnings by hook or by crook, my stock
stock options vest, they're in the money, I can cash out for a couple of million. And I'm not going to dispute that that goes on. It definitely does. I think that the uh, long-term holding period um, helps fuel that, that Americans and American businessmen look at a very short-term horizon, not a long-term horizon. Uh, I'd like to bump the uh, long-term capital gains holding period to get the breakup from one year to, like, say, three years. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that does, too, is because I remember when I was at the international firm and talking to the um, CFO um, at the time, later became CEO, of a, a small publicly traded company around here, and he was saying that when they went out and went on investor seminars that they would put on raising capital, they were always getting pressure about earnings per share, earnings per share. Everybody's worried about next quarter, next quarter. They don't even want to worry about next year. Um, that's really not a way to build a long-term anything when you're worried about next quarter like it's the end of the world. This isn't a football game. You know, it's a marathon. Um, so I'd like to bump the long-term capital gains up from one year to more like three years. So I think that by playing with the long-term capital gains rate, who gets it, how much you get it on, and by the tax cut itself for um, people that are struggling, working people at the bottom end who are having trouble to make ends meet, I think those will probably pay for the tax cut that I'm proposing. Now, do you think that in Congress you could make this happen? Because we all know that Congress takes – it's like the – it's like an indomitable – Sludge, where you have to, you know, you're you're basically cleaning out the sewers for anything to get done or accomplished in Congress. It just seems so painstakingly slow. Do you think a Harold Painter from the sixth congressional district can go to Congress and work with both sides and present your ideas and very detailed policy? I mean, Harold, I got to say, I mean, I'm really impressed by the amount of thought that you have uh, have presented. Um, about your policies, um, do you think that you can present these in Congress and and make some real substantive change occur? Um, my short answer is I hope so, and here's yeah. why. Um, I think that both parties – let me just back up on it. You know, both parties are so kind of entrenched, and they just want to shoot and snipe at one another – and not find common ground. Mm-hmm. I think with my background, I really can kind of walk in both worlds. Like I say, you know, I'm a CPA, worked down here in Montgomery County for a long time, but I don't forget where I came from. Uh, you know, both my brothers are still back home working construction. My dad did. My grandfathers before him both worked. And one was a railroader. One worked at the Kelly where they made tires. Um, yeah, I never forgot my blue-collar redneck background. Uh, I honestly think I could find common ground with people on both sides of the aisle better than virtually anybody who's down there today. Uh, I can walk in either guy's shoes and understand where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to say one freshman congressman's going to unite everybody. Uh, but like I read today, for the first time I saw on Yahoo News here, um, some of Donald Trump's uh, tax plan. It's like he's reading my website, a lot of it. Now, not all of it, but some of it, like the tax cut on the lower ends. Absolutely, he just he didn't scribe job it for mine because he doesn't know I exist. But it's the same basic proposal as, as I have in my video that I read on Yahoo News today that he's got on the couple lower brackets. Um, so if you've got a president who's saying, hey, I suggest something that's pretty similar to what this guy's suggesting, uh, I do think that I really do have the ability to talk to people from either side of the aisle. Uh, and I do think that you see in both parties now, both in Bernie Sanders and in Donald Trump, who are both outsiders who probably don't agree on a single thing with one another, uh, I do think you see an angst uh, out there where you've really got um, what I'm going to say is the blue-collar average working guy just fed up that he hasn't been represented by either party for a long time um, and that the Democrats take him for granted because, you know, they take a few executives from the AFL-CIO to lunch and remind them that in the 30s they supported them and they think they just are entitled to the working man's vote. Uh, and I, I think that both Sanders and Trump are, tacking in, are tapping into the angst uh, that people say, hey, 
Neither party's represented me in 25 years, and I'm tired of it. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you a question. I think you, I can tap into that. Do you think that Congressman John Delaney represents the 6th Congressional District as well as you could, Harold? Uh, I really don't, and I know he has a blue-collar background as well, um, but no, I don't. Uh, I was born and raised here. I know the people here. I go back home. I still I go back home almost every other weekend. I still I run into guys I haven't seen sometimes since high school that remember me. A lot of people mm-hmm. say I haven't changed. I got fatter. I got grayer, <laughs> um, but then I haven't changed that much. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I really think I could do a better job um, than anybody that didn't grow up here. And uh, to be honest, uh, ignoring the 6th District, I think I could do a good job for the country as a whole. I, I seriously do. Well, it's such an expansive district, too. I mean, you, you're talking about from Garrett County all the way down to Montgomery County. That's a lot of territory. And the the counties themselves are fundamentally different from the next. There's not a whole lot in common from with Montgomery County all the way up in Allegheny County or up in Garrett County. And... We're looking for a congressman, and there's an argument that Congressman Delaney has a little bit of a problem bridging that divide. And do you, Harold Painter, believe that you could bridge bridge the divide between Montgomery and Garrett County? Absolutely. I mean, I stand in both worlds. Uh, a, I come from back home in Western Maryland, and I know, I think, what's uh, best up there is we need jobs back. And down here in Montgomery County... Um, particularly the part of Montgomery County that you're talking about that's in the 6th District, um, A, they've got jobs, but they both share a long-term need, the long-term need of all of America. I don't care if you live in a beach in Maui, is that the federal government has got to get its fiscal house in order. When the company goes bankrupt, we all go down together. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't care if you're a multimillionaire down here or if you're struggling to put food on the table in Cumberland. Uh, if the federal government cannot get its act in gear, we're just going to be like the Roman Empire, very mighty at one time, a bunch of arrogant senators sitting on their rear ends debating things and not accomplishing anything as the decades go by and we slide from greatness down into the abyss. Uh, and I, I'm not exaggerating. I really think that's what's been going on for 30, 40 years in this country, and it's got to be reversed. Well, not only that, I think that uh, we have to get our fiscal house in order, but I think the government needs to stay the hell out of our business. Uh, and we need to limit the government's interactions in our daily life as much as possible and really follow what the Constitution says, uh, most importantly, within the Tenth Amendment, that anything that is not reserved specifically to the federal government is reverted back to the states where it rightfully belongs. And look, hey, you're talking to a libertarian guy here who truly believes in upholding the Bill of Rights and interpreting the Constitution as it, as it stands. And so, uh, Harold, I just want to run down a few issues with you to see where you stand on, um, where you stand on them. And uh, I'll, I'll we'll, do that. Let me just say one thing quick. And then, you know, on those seven issues, I only went through the first one. Do you want me to go into the other seven, or is that just too expensive? No, no, no. Yeah, I, um, you that that was going to be part of the the policy discussion. Oh, all right, I'll be quiet then. While you go ahead, all right. Oh, okay. So uh, we we'll, we'll get back to some of the other points, but uh, quickly. Um, in the forefront of the conversation now is education. Uh, we uh, the Department of Education at the federal level was created back in the 70s, and since then it has encroached on local school districts, local school boards, and it continues to grow and grow. And now we have Common Core state standards, which they claim that it was made under the guise of of of, of a state of a statewide program instead of the federal government. We all know that is not true. Um, Harold, where do you stand on education in America? Um, I really would like to turn it back more like to the county school boards, to the local. Um, the fellow that works for me, i got a small little office. The fellow that works for me was telling me not long ago that he had his, his son's 12 years old, uh, lives in uh, this part of Montgomery County that's in the district. He said, you know, you bring home math, you bring home science, you never bring home history, social studies. Why is that? And the answer is that the school doesn't want the parents to know what they're teaching the kids, okay? That is just wrong on so many levels. Um, you, you could have a, a two-day discussion on how many levels that is wrong on. 
Um, I'm I'm with you. I would like to if the Department of Education exists at all, it could be there maybe to help fund local school districts um, if they want to put on some. Uh, kind of a program to say, look, we need to increase science and math here, or we need to make computer labs available. We're in a county that can't aff- uh, a lot of kids don't have computers at home, can't afford it. They're falling behind. So if you're going to have a Department of Education at all, as far as I'm concerned, it would be just to help fund uh, proposals put out by local school boards. I'd like to push it back really to the county level, even below the state, but if the state wants to have minimum requirements, that's their business. Um, that's my short answer on that. Sure. Um, what is your What are your thoughts on Common Core state standards? Uh, I'm going to leave that up to the state legislatures. I don't need. I'll tell you one quick one on that. The same guy I'm talking about that works for me. Now, I'm a CPA. He's an accountant. He's not a CPA, but he's an accountant. He's worked for me for over 15 years now. He was helping his son with a math um, question not too long ago. They got the right answer, but his son was downgraded on it because they did it the wrong way. That's not Hmm. the way that you're supposed to think. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. What are we, back to the 12th century here now, and you get disciplined by not thinking the way that you're told to think, that you're not allowed to think out of the box, that you're not allowed to understand a concept the way that makes the most sense to you? I mean, it's ridiculous. So I'm for, uh, if if the state wants to impose some minimum levels of reading, writing, and arithmetic, that's fine with me. If the counties, which is where I'd like to see it really kind of run the school board and the local people have a lot of say in the curriculum and what's taught and how it's taught, I'm all for that. If the feds want to make resources available, um, that's fine. If they want to help fund some proposals by individual school boards, that's fine. Um, but beyond that, you know, I don't need Big Brother telling me, how to do a math problem. And I don't uh, need kids being taught history, social studies, that their parents don't know what they're being taught. Uh, what's this, Nazi Germany? One of, your, one of your platforms is you talk about illegal immigration and back to your seven-point plan. And you said that you have a plan for illegals. And you wrote, and in your video, you expressed that you talked about a policy, and you expressed it, and you said you want to give illegal 60 days to come forward and register. You would give them a work permit for one year, and during that year, if they self-deport, they would have a much better number to come back into the United States. But if they wait until the end of the year, they can't come back. Can you talk a little bit about your plan for illegal immigration? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you said can. I thought you said I did. Okay, you're making a statement, not as oh, a question. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, you pretty much have nailed it. I mean, my the short version of that is, you say, all right, there's a new sheriff in town. We're not putting up with the illegal immigration. We're not going to give you a path to citizenship without going back where you came from, and then if we reissue um, you the permit to come back, then you can come back. The way I'm paying for that, you know, that's more or less Trump's idea, and a lot of people say, well, how can you pay for that? Um, I, I think it pretty much pays for itself, because I'm saying, look, you come forward, you register, so we know where you are, we know who needs to be deported. If you come forward and say, alright, I'll either A, pay out of my own pocket to deport myself back, be it Mexico or Nicaragua or wherever somebody comes from, fine, you're going to go to the head of the list of the people we allow to come back on a more on a permanent work basis, not with a path to citizenship perhaps, but with a work visa. Um, to people that don't come forward, we're going to have a two-pronged approach. One, we're going to tell their employers it's not going to be worth it to you to employ this guy because when we ultimately do find this person, you are going to have fines and penalties that you don't want that make it uneconomical to have employed them. And to the person, we're going to say, if you didn't come forward, you weren't honest with us, you're not getting a fair shake. You're going home, and you're never coming back legally. 
and don't try to come back the way you came back last time because there will be a wall at that border, and you're not getting over it. Mm-hmm. Um, to people that want to come forward but say, look, I want to come forward, I want to get on the list, I want to be one of the chosen few that you let come back, but I'm unable to foot the bill for self-deporting, we say, fine, we're very glad you came forward. That's the kind of honesty that we want in this country. Um, we'll deport you back on our nickel if we choose to let you come back. Um, you can pay us back for some or all, depending on the kind of job the guy gets, where he's at social, you know, on the socioeconomic ladder. When you come back, you can pay us back over time, be it three years, four years, five years. Uh, maybe he only has to pay back half, maybe a third, maybe two-thirds, depending on, like I say, what, what he's making. It's not going to be that hard tracking them because when they come back, you just issue them a social, or social security number, or technically it would be an I-10, not a social security number. It's the same number of digits. But maybe you have carved out a couple of sequence or something for these people so that it's readily identifiable by virtually any payroll service that this is one of the guest worker visas that we've given out. We need to withhold an extra 5% or whatever on this person to chip into what, we fronted to deport him back because he couldn't afford the self-deportation. Harold, uh, you think I think, that you know, back in 2012, Mitt Romney suggested self-deportation, and he he got a lot of criticism from the media. Uh, he he took a, he took a lot of heat for that. Do you think that that's a practical policy, uh, considering you know we have millions of illegal immigrants now in our country? Do you think that that Illegal immigrants will actually follow through and self-deport. I mean, what? Because some some would argue that might not be a practical solution to this problem. Um, my, my to answer your question, yeah, I do, and here's why I do. Um, you're going to self-deport quick if um, the new sheriff in town says, "Look, buddy, we're out here looking for you. We are seriously looking for you." You're not getting a number that will allow you to come back if you don't come forward. And we're going to put so much pressure on employers who are going to be afraid to hire you. Yeah, you put the right pressure. It's like judo. Not that I know anything about judo, but you put the right pressure on the right uh, muscle, it gives. Same thing. They just haven't had the right pressure. You give somebody incentive, he'll take it. Well, let's move on. You want to, the third point uh, of your seven-point plan is you want to yank jobs back from China. You said you all you are all for free trade, but free trade means an open and fair trading system. If you you said in your video, if you have a good job in China, you might make around three bucks an hour. So let's talk about point three in your seven-point plan. Okay. Um, again, you've pretty much hit right on the head what I was saying. Um, you know, you can't go to an American businessman or an American working man and say, look, your competitor is making three bucks an hour. Yeah, well, maybe you can live very well on three bucks an hour over in China. You can't. <laughs> Let's face it. Uh, that's, that's not even near the minimum wage here. Uh, there's absolutely no way that an American working man can live on that kind of wage. There's no way that an American businessman can compete with that. So... I'd like to equal uh, some kind of a tariff in there, and I know that's probably anathema, particularly to a libertarian like you, but yeah, I don't care. I'm more practical on things than I am philosophical. And I'm like, look, if a foreign country, people are making a fraction of what we're making, and you can really go out on this too. I'll make a quick one here. A client of mine is very active in combating um, the uh, human trafficking, okay? Uh, there are a couple of hundred thousand slaves, and they are absolutely slaves. This isn't just some loose definition, you know. They are living no better than the slaves in the Old South lived before the Civil War in Southeast Asia who are working in the seafood industry, maybe mainly shrimp, but others over there, other pieces of the, uh, seafood over there as well. We import a tremendous amount of that seafood to this country. We shouldn't be importing slave labor, the products of slave labor in this country. Uh, A few years ago, there was, and I think this was in Bangladesh, if I'm not mistaken, there was a fire in a garment factory over there. And they had a history of false alarms, and the people 
that were running the building actually locked uh, the escape exits to keep the people working because they assumed it was another um, bogus um, fire alarm. And, of course, a lot of people died. That happened almost to the day, a hundred years after the exact same thing had happened in New York City mm-hmm. um, that had led to a lot of labor reforms in New York and then America. We can't be asking the American working man and the American businessman to compete against people that are living in true slave conditions or people that are living in working conditions that we would never condone in this country. So you have to have some kind of an adjustment tariff to allow for that, and you have to outright ban importing anything that's coming from a slave labor kind of a situation. just absolutely has to be banned. Uh, The same kind of a thing, the next step to me, is the cost American businesses have to bear um, to comply, you know, EPA, OSHA, things like that. Um, We've all seen in the news how in China the pollution is just, it's terrible. It's worse than 1943 Pittsburgh with the, with the, uh, with the smog. Um, so, you know, President Obama feels pretty good that we're reducing our ca- carbon footprint. Yeah, because China's increased in theirs, and they've taken all the jobs by doing so. You want to decrease our carbon footprint to zero? Let's all go back to uh, 1820 and, and ride horses around, you know. Um, that's his idea of reducing the carbon footprint. Let it all go over to China. Uh, let them put all the carbon in the air. Let them get all the manufacturing work. So I want to say that, look, if an American business in a particular industry on average is bearing, I'm going to make a number up just for an example, 12% of its cost of production are to comply with EPA rules, and we've got stuff coming in from a country that has little or no guidance, um, then we need to bump on maybe let's say 10% tariff because they got to have some rules and regulations in that country. But we need an allowance to say that, look, if you're not having to comply with these kind of rules, we need to to throw a tariff on there to equalize out the playing field for the American businessman that's competing with you. And if you're paying people 3 bucks an hour to work there, we need some kind of adjustment tariff to um, adjust for what an American working man needs to make a living to get by on. Those might be anti-libertarian. Adam Smith, you know, is probably rolling over in his grave that any CPA um, is saying something like this. But I'm sorry, pure capitalism leads to all of the jobs that America ever had, other than delivering pizzas and flipping burgers and other service-type jobs, all being exported overseas to people that work for virtually nothing and perform in a country that has virtually no Environmental rules. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. We have to equalize for those as a tariff. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on. We only have about uh, seven, about six and a half minutes left in this uh, interview. So let's talk about point four, five, six, and seven of your plan. Um, point four was the GDP and defense, and then you talked about national enterprise zones. And then what was point six and seven, Harold? All right. Um, and just to recap those two quick, sure. um, on the enterprise zones, what I'm after, and this is specifically something I, I view uh, helping out Western Maryland, where I'm from, and hopefully other hard-hit areas of the country, Detroit be another classic example, old Rust Belt places that have not rebounded, to say to business, look, if you expand or locate a business that's going to employ people, um, we're going to work with you. We'll give you, hopefully at a federal, state, and local level, tax breaks, be it real estate taxes locally, be it payroll taxes and, and income taxes, both at the state and federal level. Uh, if you're going to employ enough people, maybe even some financing assistance, industrial revenue bonds, industrial development bonds, uh, things like that, to bring jobs to the parts of America that are the hardest hit. Uh, that's the enterprise zones in a nutshell. On... Um, Germany, Japan, and others, too, who aren't third-world countries, but who certainly are still getting a share of the American economy, you look at what America spends as a percentage of its GDP on our mutual defense, you look at what other countries spend, you know, we're outstripping Germany like four to one right now. Uh, They're the ones that are on the cusp of Russia, not us. 
you look at, at Japan, and they've stepped it up of late, but we're still spending two and a half, three times what they are. They're the ones that look across the Sea of Japan at Red China, not us. Um, no more free ride. If you want to be a big player in the American economy, exporting your goods here and taking our money home, your country is going to pony up as an equal percent of GDP or at least somewhat equivalent percent, or we're going to tax your businesses heavier. It's, it's, it's pay, uh, pay up or shut up. Um, that's that in a nutshell. Now, the other two things I've talked about are pretty specific um, for back home. Uh, well, the one really isn't specific just for back home. Coal liquefaction. Let me go into that for a minute. It's a technology that's 100 years old. Uh, basically, it's quite possible, and people still do it, there are liquefaction plants in China and America today, to take coal, turn it into oil, and to make gasoline or diesel fuel out of the coal. Um, as long as, now right now, with Saudi Arabia pumping it out of the ground cheaper than some people can even pump it out of the ground, and Iran now coming online, oil prices have fallen. Uh, but if you look in the last decade, oil's almost always been over 50 bucks a barrel. As long as oil trades at over 50 bucks a barrel, it's economical to produce our own gasoline from American coal rather than to import it from overseas. Um, on a large-scale basis, Germany fought World War II on this stuff, so don't tell me you can't do it, okay? Uh, another basis, now this is another country you don't like being associated with, but still, South Africa prior to the repeal of apartheid when the world wouldn't trade with them. South Africa also having a lot of coal, they ran their economy on it. Um, and the, the price of gas at the pump in, in South America, uh, South Africa, never got above the price of the pump in the rest of the world. Um, to me, we go to... The old um, Rust Belt, Western Maryland be a prime example, which is always which was basically built on the edge of the old coal fields, which are really hurt by Obama's war on coal. And we say we're going to build some coal liquefaction plants. We're going to put thousands of men to work mining and turning American coal into gasoline. We don't have to cut off all foreign imports, but the ability to put thousands of men to work, to not have to import the oil, to keep that money here at home, to put men to work here at home, I think is something we really ought to look into. Um, I really do. So I really would like to put coal liquefaction on the front burner. Uh, the last person to do so was Jimmy Carter. Um, it was on the front burner in a big way with the Carter administration. They were going to build, I remember because this is at the time my dad was the business agent for the Plumbers and Steamfitters Union back home, so I knew how many men it was going to employ and all that at the time. They were going to build a trial plant over in the Morgantown area. Um, of course, when um, Carter lost in the election, that went right by the boards, uh, and no one's talked about it or anything since. Yeah. Um, I'd like to re-explore coal liquefaction. Uh, the other one I've thrown out, which is specifically uh, for back home, you know, Maryland and Western Maryland does have a, a share of the Marcellus Shale Formation. Eventually, I know um, right now Maryland has chosen not to tap that, but that's not going to go on forever. Eventually it will be tapped. In addition to the natural gases that are used for fuel that will come out of there, there are other gases that are used to manufacture plastics. To me, it's quite simple. Hey, I'm going to attach a little string, frankly, an anchor chain I want to attach. You want the natural gas? Fine. We want a plant to take the, pla uh, the gases that are used to manufacture plastics. We want a plastics manufacturing plant, be it Garrett County or Allegheny County, um, to put men back to work at good uh, jobs. Yes. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, Harold, um, I, I would love to talk more about your plan and I invite you to come back on any time. We have about uh, 35 seconds left. But I, I, I look forward to seeing you in the debate in January with uh, surrounded by your opponents. And I really appreciate your thoroughness in expressing your ideas and your openness to do the interview. I think these, are inter these interviews are important. It gives people an opportunity to hear your platform, to hear what you're all about. And um, could you tell people where they can contact you? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you go to my website again, www.painterforcongress.com, uh, on my website I've got a contact 
page. You just link there. You can send me an email. It comes to me direct. All right. I'm doing all this on my own. There's no one reading my emails but me. <laughs> there you uh, go. You send Harold, me an email, I'll reply to it. Harold, thank you so much for your time. Merry Christmas, and we will see you next year at the Republican debate. Merry Christmas to you, and thank you very much for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks.